Alan Wasalan, welcome, Your Excellencies, Your Highness, Ambassadors, Diplomats, Board of Directors, International Affairs Fellows from the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. Today's guest, Mr. Nawaf Althari, members of the media, ladies and gentlemen, Salaamu Alaikum and welcome. Thank you for being with us here this afternoon in the Rayburn House Office Building. Today's event is in furtherance of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations mission to educate Americans about issues of global importance, such as this involving the U.S.-Arab relationship as an issue and as counterterrorism. <clears throat> Dr. Anthony has asked me to point out uh, a few sentences from the uh, recently released uh, country report uh, by the United States Department of State uh, for Terrorism for 2005 uh, that is provided and required by law and provided to this body here, the United States Congress. And I quote, Saudi Arabia continued to maintain a vigorous counterterrorism relationship with the United States, supported enhanced bilateral cooperation to ensure the safety of both U.S. and Saudi citizens within Saudi Arabian territories and abroad, and was an active participant in the global coalition to counter Daesh ISIL. The Saudi Arabian government took a zero-tolerance stance on ISIL, condemning its activities and participating in coalition military action to defeat the group in Syria and in Iraq. Its external military action against ISIL in Syria as part of the U.S.-led coalition, was complemented by an aggressive campaign by both official clerics and King Salman to discredit the group and condemn its activities as acts of terrorism. And I unquote. It's an honor uh, to conclude and turn this program over to the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations founding president and chief executive officer, uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony. Just a few words about Dr. Anthony. Uh, Dr. Anthony was knighted by the King of Morocco uh, in June 2000. Uh, from 1975 to 1988, Dr. Anthony directed the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Saudi Arabian Affairs, week-long pre-departure programs on Saudi Arabian <coughs> American personnel going to Saudi Arabia as part of the U.S. Joint Commission on Economic Cooperation. During the same period, he conducted pre-departure tutorials for U.S. Department of Defense personnel assigned to the Saudi Arabian National Guard's modernization program. Dr. Anthony currently serves on U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry's Advisory Committee on International Economic Policy and its Subcommittee on Sanctions. He is the only American to have been invited to each of the Gulf Cooperation Council's ministerial and heads of state summits since the GCC's inception in 1981. Dr. Anthony. Thank you, Patrick, uh, Ramadan Karim, and welcome especially to the ambassadors and members of the embassy staffs of the 22 uh, Arab countries. Uh, many who are here for the first time probably grew up thinking that most 
Arabs or Muslims. Most Muslims are Arabs. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the Arabs would be in the neighborhood of 330 million, almost the same population as the United States of America. But the Islamic community worldwide, uh, the adherence to the faith number 1.6 billion. So one can do the math uh, to see that uh, the majority, uh, you can say almost the vast majority of Muslims are not Arabs. Um, here, though, we're focusing on one of the 22 Arab countries, one of the 28 Middle Eastern countries, and one of the 57 uh, Muslim countries that are members of the organization of the Islamic Conference, uh, the highest international organization to which uh, Muslim leaders belong uh, worldwide. Saudi Arabia is the pivotal leader of that body. It came into existence in the aftermath of a fire set to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in 1969 by a religious zealot. Uh, and the wrath and angst and pain in the hearts of Muslims worldwide uh, was apparent from Morocco to Muscat, Baghdad to Berbera, Algiers to Aden, Aleppo and Alexandria uh, in between. Saudi Arabia, together with Morocco and other nations, uh, convened to see what could be done to Muslims living under harsh, uh, brutal occupation uh, in the region. So it exists from then till now, with Morocco being the ongoing chair of the Jerusalem uh, Committee. But this particular focus is in the time of an atmosphere and many think the moment is politically propitious uh, to bash Muslims and by extension Arabs and by extension Saudi Arabia and by extension the Saudi Arabian United States uh, relationship. Uh, the media has a field day on this and members of the United States Congress have also entered into this fray uh, with members of the House of Representatives of this building and the Senate uh, having indicated that they intend to attach conditions to all future American uh, proposals for arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Conditions uh, related to Saudi Arabia's policies, Saudi Arabia's positions, Saudi Arabia's attitudes, Saudi Arabia's actions. Uh, these are not just issues pertaining to uh, terrorism, uh, but to human rights and to the role of Saudi Arabia in countering terrorism, which as speaker, as specialist today, uh, will be addressing from the perspective of the United Nations. It's rare that in these meetings someone comes from New York specially to address a seminar held by the National Council anywhere, and least of all in the Congress of the United States. And there are a lot of young people here <coughs> who are uh, dreaming their dreams and mulling over their aspirations of what will be their life after they finish being interns or complete their undergraduate training. 
and not, not a few of them are giving serious and favorable consideration to a career in international affairs. And in that realm, the United Nations is at the tip of the spear uh, of all uh, organizations in international affairs and international relations. Where is Saudi Arabia coming from with regard to this counterterrorism issue? Uh, a summary, uh, a brief recount of about five chronological milestones uh, will be helpful to provide context, provide background, and provide perspective uh, for your questions. Uh, three by five cards in every seat. If you have a question, uh, please fill it out, and one of our staff will bring it. Uh, to the front. Uh, there are usually more questions than can be answered, uh, but we'll do our best to get to the heart of the more relevant uh, ones, given time limitations. Uh, with regard to Saudi Arabia and counterterrorism, uh, we published a report as early as 2003, two years after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in New York and this city within hearing distance of here and crashing in the fields of uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Saudi Arabia convened the first international uh, counterterrorism uh, conference in 2005 with 55 nations uh, participating uh, with their uh, representatives. In 2006, it used its leadership, its vision, and its assertiveness within the United Nations General Assembly to press and push for the United Nations being identified with counterterrorism strategies uh, worldwide. And this was adopted unanimously by all of the members of the United Nations General Assembly. And mind you, of the 212 countries in the world, 193 are members of the United Nations and the United Nations uh, General Assembly. In 2005, also, uh, King Abdullah, uh, the late King Abdullah, Allah Yehrimu, uh, convened uh, the first ever Muslim-initiated interfaith uh, dialogue. And from that uh, original meeting, which featured not just uh, Muslims, uh, Christians, and Jews, but Hindus, Buddhists, and Confucians, and Jains, and people of other faiths, uh, to try to see what can be done to uh, lessen the degree of intolerance and heighten the degree of tolerance, acceptability, and respectability, and dialogue, especially amongst the monotheistic faiths and the non-monotheistic faiths that have followings uh, worldwide. And here the summation of what has consensually been agreed to is as follows, that not much, if anything, can be done to curb uh, terrorism unless uh, there are sound policies and positions and actions and attitudes of the governments that are affected by the scourge of terrorism. And not much other can happen without government efforts this is not largely a private sector uh, reality, though it has private sector implications and realities, but it is at the level of governments where the leadership for nationwide sound policies can occur. 
And then that, too, will not make much of a difference unless the third component is there, namely robust international cooperation. And our speaker is the focal point of international cooperation with the United Nations Committee on Counterterrorism. And towards that end, uh, the late King Abdullah contributed $10 million to establish uh, a center for the study and the reversal of the defeat of the violent extremists and those who destroy uh, things of life and inanimate objects as well. Within the same year, though, the UN Secretary General gets kudos for going to Riyadh and saying $10 million won't do it. Uh, might you contribute a little more? And King Abdullah contributed 10 times more. So Saudi Arabia has put $110 million behind this center and this committee and this effort at the United Nations Security Council. The other countries that have contributed have been the United States, Great Britain, Norway, and Germany. None of the four I just mentioned, though, have contributed more than three million, whereas Saudi Arabia has contributed more than 33 times as much with $110 million. But with regard to the strategy of this committee to try to uh, respect and honor human rights and international law, uh, but to end this scourge, a big piece of it is to try to eradicate that which is conducive to terrorism and to at-risk youth wanting to join these groups. And we know enough by now that unemployment drives a lot of this. And unemployment for males especially means that one has no elemental dignity. Uh, one cannot marry. Who is going to offer their daughter in marriage to someone who cannot make ends meet, even for himself, and who perhaps into his 40s is living with his parents? And who would give a loan of any kind uh, to such an individual? So you can see the lure for those who are despairing of what life's opportunities may have for them. And Tunisians, small Tunisia, has sent more of its youth to join the forces of ISIS than any other one country per capita. And Tunisia has massive, pervasive unemployment with no end in sight, despite the best government efforts to make a difference. With regard to additional chronological uh, notations, King Abdullah also outlawed extremist, violent, intolerant groups in the kingdom, including the Muslim Brothers. And this was a bold <coughs> initiative and step with its own uh, implications. And Mr. Alathari will mention some of the additional details here. Uh, but in his three years and two months in his position, he has initiated 30 projects. 
in the realm of counterterrorism initiatives. So we have an unusual individual here uh, to address these issues. But what has Saudi Arabia been doing outside the kingdom to try to stem the scourge of terrorism? In Lebanon, it contributed $1 billion to enhance the capacity and effectiveness of Lebanon's internal security forces. And then not long after that, it pledged $3 billion to enhance uh, Lebanon's national uh, defense structure, its national armed forces. And Saudi Arabia has been contributing to the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, paying their rent and paying also their living costs. And it's taken or granted 2.5 million Syrians shelter, refuge, free education like Saudi Arabian citizens, free health care like Saudi Arabian citizens, and offered all of the 2.5 million to remain in Saudi Arabia if they so wish and be allowed to do so on a permanent residency basis. Already more than 100,000 Syrians have taken advantage of this, and 100,000 Syrians uh, have entered into Saudi Arabia's school systems. What about Yemen? Not just now and for the last several years, but going back more than a quarter of a century, no country has come close to what Saudi Arabia has contributed financially and economically for the infrastructural and related economic development of Yemen. Uh, most of the treatment of Yemen in the media focuses on the here and now, but one needs to go back further than that. Indeed, uh, I've done the research on this, and there were eight contributors from the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, East Germany, West Germany, the Netherlands, Great Britain, Ireland, and Canada, and Japan. But Saudi Arabia's contributions exceeded all of these other contributions combined. Uh, one would have to search far and wide to find a similar example or precedent uh, for that kind of assistance. With regard to Iraq, it has contributed $500 million for the distressed, the internally displaced population there as well. And without regard to religious sect, in other words, despite what the media would imply, they are sheer recipients of this aid from Saudi Arabia. And if you wanted further evidence of the 100,000 Saudi Arabian students in the United States in the last three years, more than 20% of those students are Shia Muslim Saudi Arabian students. And this too flies in the face of a stereotype. Back to Syria and Iraq, and in terms of the mandate of this committee to go after the forces, the factors, the phenomena that are conducive to terrorism recruitment and terrorism acts on individuals and government facilities. Conducive to this has a lot to do with rhetoric. And so a strategic objective is to neutralize the rhetoric coming out of religious leaders and secular leaders. Uh, 
but if we ponder for a moment, we must realize that rhetoric is linked closely to attitudes. And attitudes are linked closely to public policies, public positions, public actions, public uh, attitudes in a different uh, way. And then ask, what is the scorecard for the United States of America? The United States invaded a country illegally that had not attacked the United States and was not an imminent threat to American interests of the United States. From that, two million refugees and pondered the following of the two million Syria took in immediately 1.3 million with no visas. After all of this time since 2003 and the additional refugees that have been created in Syria, the United States has taken in only 3,000 Syrians. Saudi Arabia, two and a half million. Germany alone last year, 1.2 million. Canada doubled the number of the United States and pondered the large American population versus the small population of Syria. And Syria would be one-tenth, one-fifteenth the size of the American population. And it took in 1.3 million. The United States has taken of the Syrians 3,000. And of the Iraqis, who were the interrogators, drivers, facilitators, expediters, and therefore had a bullseye on their chest and on their back, three years after the conflict, the United States had not taken in more than 28,000. So what does this say about the United States? Uh, why provoke a friend? Why antagonize an ally? Why be incendiary in one's rhetoric uh, to inflame the passions and emotions of 1.6 billion uh, Muslims? I'll stop here and introduce our speaker, and we'll then go to our questions. Uh, but our speaker is not as old as the person speaking to you now. <laughs> Nawaf Athari is the United Nations uh, counterterrorism specialist representing Saudi Arabia, which is fitting given the $110 million contributions that Saudi Arabia has made. And during Saudi Arabia's chairmanship of the 57 nation organization of the Islamic uh, Conference, uh, he was the principal negotiator on behalf of those. Uh, states to form a cooperative agreement with the United Nations. He's been a coordinator on all efforts related to counterterrorism uh, at the United Nations and worked closely with the Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, in terms of formulating a plan of action uh, to prevent violent extremism. Please recommend, <laughs> please accept. Uh, as speaker, uh, heartily, uh, Mr. Uh, Nawaf Al-Athari.
ladies and gentlemen, excellencies, distinguished guests, good afternoon and thank you for all being here today. I would like to give special recognition to Dr. John Duke Anthony, Pat Mancino, Paige Peterson, and the entire staff at the Council on U.S.-Arab Relations for giving me this opportunity to speak on this important subject. I'd also like to wish you all a blessed month of Ramadan. In October 2010, two plastic explosives hidden in printer cartridges were discovered on board of cargo planes that had left Yemen destined for the U.S. En route to Chicago, they were intercepted by U.S. forces in time to foil the terror plot and avert both disaster and certain tragedy. Looking at the big picture, that interception was the result of Saudi intelligence acting in cooperation with U.S. Homeland Security. But if we deconstruct the events leading up to that day, we see that the vital information came from former Guantanamo Bay prisoner Jabir al-Faifi. Al-Faifi had returned home to Saudi Arabia, and while immersed in a carefully managed Saudi rehabilitation program, he had confessed knowledge of the plot. When we think about the kinds of individuals, countries, and agencies who have united with the U.S. in the fight against terror, I'm not sure that the Saudi Arabian government is among the first that comes to mind for most. And yet the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has been an integral part of this endeavor for over two decades, contributing millions of dollars to the cause, and in many cases, spearheading initiatives that have created enduring measures to overcome radicalized insurgents. It is no surprise to me, however, that the general public and even Washington insiders remain in the dark about the leading role that Saudi Arabia plays in the global fight against terror. I think a few things are to blame here. One is misleading homogenizing labels such as Wahhabism. Wahhabism is a term that paints Saudis as extremist Muslims who tout an ultra-conservative Sunni doctrine used as a model by Daesh. You only have to look up Saudi Arabia on Wikipedia to read all about this phenomenon. But Wahhabism is in fact an invented word. It has no holy book, no affiliates, there's no group who practices law, and no person who would ever call themselves a Wahhabi. Another reason Saudi efforts are not widely acknowledged is the lack of positive media coverage about Saudi Arabia, generally speaking. Indeed, US media outlets do not tend to shed light on ongoing efforts taken by multilateral agencies with which the kingdom works in tandem to combat terrorism. I suppose when you've got a presidential campaign like this one to write about, we shouldn't be all too surprised. Besides, much of the counterterrorism work carried out by these agencies is intense, covert, and a lot of it takes place in Saudi Arabia itself, where I'm guessing not many of you spend a lot of time. Or perhaps it's because counterterrorism isn't quite as exciting without a Saul, carrier Quinn. I can see why a short, nerdy guy with a folder instead of a gun is a disappointing replacement. It might simply be that when it comes to global issues of complexity, what goes on deep in the belly of UN headquarters is a mystery to many. There are a number of reasons why Saudi Arabia's participation has been downplayed or misunderstood. So I'm honored and pleased to come here today to demystify, or better yet, enlighten you on the global fight on terror and the vital role that my country has and continues to play in this fight. Let me start by confessing that my interest in this subject is fueled by personal motive. I was raised in the U.S., right around the corner from here, 
in McLean, Virginia. My parents raised my siblings and I to be proud of our culture, our heritage, and our faith. It angers me that organizations like Al-Qaeda and Daesh have hijacked Islamic tradition and culture and have tarnished the faith by carrying out horrific acts of violence in the name of religion. But I'm not here as an impassioned Saudi activist. I'm here because as a political advisor and a Saudi counterterrorism focal point to the United Nations Counterterrorism Center, I have a unique insight into what is being done to stifle this abhorrent growth of violence and how successful our efforts have been. Some of you may be wondering, what is the United Nations Counterterrorism Center? It sounds like another center within a center within a department in the UN. You're right, it's pretty much that. But it is actually the only UN entity dealing with terrorists directly. And since its inception, it has built groundbreaking projects aimed toward combating, combating our common enemies and helping build countries' capacities to fight the scourge. That is in large part thanks to the Kingdom's influence in the Center's inception and continued support for the Center's projects. But first I want to anticipate another question, because I believe that the answer lies at the heart of why so little is understood about Saudi Arabia's motives to solve this crisis. The question then is, how did it come to be that a country, albeit falsely, is accused of harboring, bankrolling, and supporting terrorists, is leading the efforts within the United Nations Counterterrorism Center? And the answer is very simple. The Saudi people have been burned by car bombs, attacked by suicide bombers, assassinated and targeted by extremist fighters. Like so many, we have lost loved ones and lives have been ruined by reckless, dangerous groups. And as Ambassador Abdullah Al-Saud put it, there are two things that Saudi Arabia and its people hold most dear and will never allow to be threatened, our faith and our security. <coughs> Following an already aggressive counterterrorism campaign launched after 9-11, citizens of the kingdom were truly galvanized in their own fight against terror. In May 2003, when residential compounds in Riyadh were targeted and then devastated by Al-Qaeda bombs. Since then, it has been the kingdom's national priority to defeat the terrorists, not just at home, but on a global level, and it has taken significant steps in order to do so. Collaborating with allies on all fronts, Saudi Arabia has performed coalition airstrikes against Daesh in Syria, collaborated with global military services on technology transfers, increased international banking controls, and enhanced both cybersecurity and information exchange. And as I mentioned, has been the biggest donor to the UNCCT, where His Excellency Ambassador Abdullah Al-Malami serves as the chair of the advisory board. The bulk of my talk this afternoon is going to focus on the UNCCT efforts. But I'm going to take you, what I'm going to first take you through the various initiatives and projects led by the Saudi government to alleviate terror on local, regional, and international scales. Indeed, it is only by solving the problems on home soil that a country like Saudi Arabia can support and bolster the global fight against terror. The Kingdom has, been, has taken a comprehensive and holistic approach to combat terror internally that involves military and security optimization, rigorous tracing of funds, and ideological reform. From a security standpoint, Saudi Arabia has poured billions of dollars into domestic programs and training. Since 2003, the national security budget has grown by roughly $50 billion. Further, the Kingdom has spent tremendous resources on the U.S.-trained Special Operations Forces, which are drawn from each branch of the Kingdom's military, 
and specialized in domestic counterterrorism and, and internal security operations. Numbering 10,000, the forces go through a rigorous training program designed to prepare soldiers for every possible contingency, from attacks on convoys, hostage search and recovery, bomb clearance, the storming of militant hideouts, precision shooting, and border surveillance. The work of these Saudis SOF units most recently includes deployment into Yemen to assist with the conflict against Houthi rebels, and they were tasked to take a wider part in the U.S.-led operations against Daesh earlier this year. Another security branch which constitutes a significant portion of Saudi's anti-terror efforts is the Ministry of Interior's Special Security Force, comprising of some 500 operatives. The SSF is tasked with internal security operations, including combating terrorism of all shapes and forms, and is the equivalent of the U.S. SWAT team. Unfortunately, modern warfare encompasses more than just boots on the ground and jets in the sky. And as such, Saudi Arabia has invested the most of any country in the Middle East in acquiring cyber capabilities, underscoring the growing importance with which the kingdom sees cybersecurity. From a financial standpoint, the kingdom has imposed various restrictions to stand in the way of terror funding. These include enacted legislation on criminalization of drug money laundering and outside of drug money, the official criminalization of terror financing, the reporting of suspected terrorist financing, cross-border transportation, and the establishment of financial intelligence units. In June 2015, the Financial Action Task Force extended observer status to Saudi Arabia and selected the kingdom as a candidate for potential full membership. The FATF was established by the G7 in 1989 with the objective of establishing international standards regarding the implementation of legal, regulatory, and operational measures for combating money laundering and terrorist financing. Currently, Saudi Arabia and Israel have FATF observer status as do 23 observer organizations, such as the World Bank, the UN, and the IMF. Saudi Arabia has eliminated the nationwide network of money transfer centers that were used for many years as terrorist financing vehicles under the guise of charities. The Kingdom has also supported various United Nations resolutions related to countering the financing of terrorism. While military and financial means are effective in the short to medium term, the generational and long-term antidote is indeed that of ideological reformation. In efforts to combat radical ideology, government officials adopted a series of educational counterterrorism measures aimed at undermining extremist views and disrupting the activities of those who promote violent extremism. In February 2014, the Saudi Ministry of Education formally prohibited schools from working with lecturers who were thought to be prone to ideological extremism in order to protect students intellectually. The ministry banned schools from coordinating with any inflammatory preachers who might indoctrinate students. It has also conducted an audit of school textbooks and curricula to ensure that the teachers do not preach intolerance. Saudi Public TV and other sponsored broad channels broadcast a five-part series titled Jihad Experiences, The Deceit which featured terrorist confessions and repentant terrorist testimonies of how terrorist groups organize, train, and recruit. Also broadcast were interviews with well-known Saudi scholars 
who recanted their earlier fatwas that supported terrorist attacks and urged terrorist suspects to surrender. Imams who preach intolerance or hate towards others are dismissed, punished, or retrained. Among many more, these are some of the methods that the kingdom is implementing from within to ensure maximum sh short and long-term security for its people. Of course, Saudi Arabia does not exist in isolation. It is very much a key member of a region that is currently riddled with fear of fundamentalist attacks. Daesh have spread in areas surrounding the kingdom and have set up base and occupied land in neighboring countries. Daesh is a committed terrorist threat against Saudi Arabia. The terror group has carried out between 15 and 20 attacks against the kingdom since November 2014. The kingdom has 800 members of Daesh in its jails. As of September 2015, officials in the kingdom arrested more than 1,300 citizens and more than 300 foreigners on suspicion of connection with Daesh. <clears throat> Reflecting the government's firm approach to perceived domestic security threats, an ISIL counter-finance group was formed in early 2015 to support the efforts of the global coalition to combat Daesh and is co-led by the Kingdom, Italy, and the United States. Late last year, Deputy Crown Prince and Defense Minister Prince Mohammed bin Salman announced the establishment of an all-Muslim military coalition and is, and is based at a joint command center in Riyadh. The alliance has stated that its primary objective is to protect the Islamic nations from all terrorist groups and all terrorist organizations. Irrespective of sect and name, and has announced that it will fight terrorists in Muslim countries, prioritizing those most affected and in line with the United Nations and Organization of Islamic Cooperation's provisions on combating terrorism. The initiative taken by the Alliance and Muslim-majority countries is highly commendable and urgent. As violent fundamentalist movements have largely originated in these countries, however, the fight is undeniably a global one that requires a strong international unity. As such, in September of 2011, the United Nations Counterterrorism Center was established. Prior to the center's establishment, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, in February of 2005, hosted the first International Counterterrorism Conference in Riyadh, at which the late custodian of the two holy mosques, King Abdullah bin Abdul Aziz, called upon the international community to establish an international center to fight terrorism. And in September 2006, the UN General Assembly adopted the landmark United Nations Global Counterterrorism Strategy. The plan of action incorporated four pillars intended to A, address the conditions conducive to the spread of terrorism, B, to prevent and combat terrorism, C, build states' capacity to prevent and combat terrorism, and D, ensure respect for human rights and the rule of law in countering terrorism. The second pillar acknowledged the need for an international center to fight terrorism. These pillars become the, have become the foundation of the Kingdom's UN project. The United Nations Counterterrorism Center's mission is to promote international counterterrorism through the implementation of the United Nations Global Counterterrorism Strategy and within the International Bodies Counterterrorism Implementation Task Force. The UNCCT was founded with an initial contribution of $10 million from the Kingdom followed by an additional $100 million from Riyadh in 2014. The center consists of an advisory board of 21 member states, including the US, UK, Russia, China, Germany, France, Switzerland, and numerous Arab and Muslim majority states. To date, 
the UNCCT has in initiated more than 30 non-military counterterrorism projects at the global, regional, and national levels. These include projects to understand the foreign terrorist fighters phenomenon as part of a UN-wide implementation plan, the development of global good practices to uphold the protection of human rights while countering terrorism, border security initiatives, jointly with the Global Counterterrorism Forum to train agents in peripheral security measures in the Horn of Africa and the Sahel region, support for the development and adoption of regional counterterrorism strategies in Central Asia and Southern Africa. Additionally, the center has also engaged with the private sector to share expertise and gain new perspectives on certain phenomena. It has cooperated with Google and Facebook through the Digital Diplomacy Forum to discuss online radicalization and how to best counter it. The UNCCT has also developed a one-of-a-kind tool called the Network Against Terrorism. This is a collaborative platform developed under the framework of fostering collaboration between different counterterrorism centers around the world by sharing counterterrorism information. This is a secured platform protected under the level confidential of the UN security standards. The platform currently holds counterterrorism information, including everything from centers and experts to projects in geographical and thematic areas of expertise events and publications. It will be fully operational during the course of this summer as more enter entities register to be a part of the network. Primarily, however, the center's focus is on delivering tangible impact on the ground. Over the last quarter of 2015, the UNCCT has trained numerous senior government, security and law enforcement officials from Southeast Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and Eastern Africa. These capacity-building activities, which lie at the heart of the center's mission, focused on stemming the flow of foreign terrorist fighters, terrorist designation and asset freezing, border security, respect for human rights while countering terrorism, and identifying and responding to radicalization. The center is currently working with the governments of Mali and Nigeria to deepen their capacity-building engagement through the Integra Integrated Assistance on Counterterrorism Initiative. The IACT, for short, is comprised of representatives from each of the CTITF partner entities. IACT draws upon and complements the work of entities participating in CTITF without replacing or duplicating that work. Overall, assistance provision or facilitation continues through the entities under their own mandates. But IACT helps to ensure a holistic view and provides an interface with the partnering governments. The center has utilized IACT and have worked actively in Burkina Faso and will be carrying out projects in Kenya, Tunisia, Ghana, Pakistan, Jordan, Iraq, Colombia, and Argentina, among others. In terms of methodology, the center is increasingly looking to develop a train-the-trainer approach in order to achieve a multiplier effect. The center has worked to develop comprehensive and coherent plans that include 37 mutually reinforcing projects, project proposals, addressing the full foreign terrorist fighter life cycle, from radicalization to training, financing, travel, return, de-radicalization, and rehabilitation. This is a truly groundbreaking project, as the center is the only UN entity that has been given access to interview foreign terrorist fighters from countries all over the world. This will help develop a data set on terrorist motives, mentalities, the nature of the groups they join, the deeper meaning of their association with these groups, and why they decided to come back, allowing countries to focus their resources on those individuals who may present a real threat upon return, 
rather than indiscriminately targeting all returnees at the risk of radicalizing those who return with no intention of taking further action. Going forward, the UNCCT is aiming to support the implementation of larger projects at the global level in such key areas as border security, financing of terrorism, kidnapping for ransom, strategic communications and human rights training. It will also seek to expand its list of counterterrorism advisors while deploying these experts to member states, regional and sub-regional organizations, UN country teams, and UN field presences. These efforts, among many others, highlight the key role the UNCCT is playing in the global war on terror and violent extremism. With that being said, the center is still relatively young, though it is without a doubt on a swift path towards optimal efficiency and functionality. The aim is for, us, for the center to develop into a center of excellence. This would not be possible without my country's unshakable commitment to the cause. Indeed, since 9-11, Saudi Arabia has used every resource available to lead this fight protect its people, and lend support to the global community. As it deals with direct problems locally and regionally, through its contribution to the UNCCT, it is now helping the world build capacities and implement strategies which translate to immediate impact on the ground. Saudi counterterrorism efforts have saved countless lives around the world. As their impact continues to grow, so will recognition and appreciation of these efforts, despite negative labels and coverage. A rare and recent public acknowledgement of Saudi's global anti-terror contributions came from UK Prime Minister David Cameron. He stated the following, A piece of information that we have been given by that country, referring to Saudi Arabia, has saved potentially hundreds of lives here in Britain. The war on terror is not an American crusade. It is not a Middle Eastern problem. It is a global conflict of epic proportions. If we are to claim victory against our enemies, all countries must have the ability to defend themselves from such aggressors. Systems and programs must be put in place. Forces and specialists must be adequately trained and equipped. Children educated, human rights protected. We are talking about more than just firepower and HBO specials. It takes real leadership and investment so that impact can be multiplied and the message of peace amplified. I hope now that I have shed light on the Kingdom's commitment to this global cause. You'll be, you'll be better able to recognize the impact of its work. Thank you for your time today and curiosity to know more. Would you, would you mind uh, standing to take questions so that these over here can have eye contact with you? some important people over here. Um, I'll ask some. Patrick Mancino will ask some. We have a load of them here. Um, I'll start with giving you two or three that relate to each other and uh, switch. The first one has to do with what is the difference between the Islamic theology of the kingdom and that of the Islamic state of uh, al-Baghdadi? Uh, people could not answer that question intelligently or accurately without having someone like you comment and provide a perspective and insight. 
uh, somewhat related to that is uh, how does the Saudi Arabian government support for more fundamental religious and conservative viewpoints fuel terrorist interpretations and actions? Uh, and if so, how are counterterrorism efforts addressing this while maintaining support for a certain teaching of Islam? Okay. How might you provide us insight into education and employment opportunities being effectively addressed in your counterterrorism efforts? Uh, in the GCC region, those who specialize on this uh, recognize that half of the GCC countries have this challenge, and that, that half is Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, and Oman. Uh, Kuwait, uh, Qatar, and the Emirates do not have that challenge. Um, but in terms of how Saudi Arabia addresses it and how effectively uh, its efforts are, uh, will turn a lot of uh, answers to other questions about should I invest in the kingdom? Should I withdraw my investment? Uh, should I bring my family with me? Uh, what about my children, etc.? Are there any statistics um, concerning the um, rate of uh, progress here? Um, one third of the population is under the age of 30. Uh, that's 10 million individuals uh, who one can say uh, include those who are at risk because they're not yet in many cases employed and not yet uh, with the confidence that their future will be a bright one, or as bright as that of their parents. Um, in the next U.S. administration, if the next U.S. administration wants to improve on the notably chilled relations uh, the U U.S. government has with the Kingdom and King uh, Salman's government, what might be uh, the top two or three priorities in order for this to occur? Um, of course, that's a loaded question, uh, stating almost as though it's a reality and a fact uh, that the chilled relations the Obama administration has with the kingdom and King Salman's government. You've almost answered some of that. Uh, with regard to the number and the depth and the breadth and the diversity of programs uh, between our two peoples that are uh, pointed in the direction of dropping the references to Saudi Arabian, Saudi Arabians being objects, those, them, not us, and tilted in the direction because of all that we share much of which we share in terms of fear, but a great deal of which we share in terms of hope and optimism. Um, where is this going, uh, perhaps, in the next election, uh, to tilt towards a sense of usness, of we, and of you and me, not those, them, and the other?
Thank you, Dr. Hensley, for asking those questions. Uh, as far as the first question is concerned, uh, I think it relates to the second question as to how uh, it supports uh, and fuels interpretations and actions. Uh, what is the difference between the Islamic theology of the kingdom and that of ISIS? It's very simple. Uh, ISIS considers the kingdom one of its biggest enemies. Uh, so uh, when you look at the interpretations, our interpretations are much different. They, they promote peace, they promote tolerance, and ISIS's uh, theology promotes a, uh, a hatred to other faiths and, and promotes violence, which the kingdom does not uh, condone at all. Uh, and so I believe the second question was, how does the uh, Saudi interpretation support extremist groups? Does not. It simply does not. Uh, as far as education and employment opportunities and how that can help uh, take people out, off the path to radicalization, I think the kingdom is uh, taking great strides in that regard. Uh, we have recently had the launch of Saudi Vision 2030, which is uh, aimed at modernizing our economy, allowing for more job opportunities and creation of opportunities for youth to be involved uh, within the educational and and and, uh, and workforce. Uh, as far as the question regarding the U.S. administration, how the next U.S. administration, how they would improve relations with Saudi Arabia, uh, maybe that's a question better uh, suited for our colleagues here at the embassy. But I will say this: uh, I think the the first step in in, in doing so is is aligning uh, the visions as to what we want to accomplish in the region, and that is peace and stability, and that is what, uh, that is what Saudi has, has been striving for, and, and I think the main rift has come with a difference of vision as to how to handle uh, affairs and uh, crises in the region. Okay, that's perfect. Question, but I'm going to start with uh, with four for you, Jawaf. Uh, um, what could be done uh, to provide the biggest improvement in counterterrorism efforts in the next year, as you see it, uh, and in the next five years? So thinking, taking it one year incrementally, increasing it out to the next five years. Uh, second question: uh, What is Saudi Arabia doing? Uh, are they part? Is the kingdom partnering with other GCC countries? in countering violent extremism uh, initiatives. And can you give some examples uh, of that? Uh, this is a curious question. Um, the meeting uh, that's been announced uh, next week of uh, the Deputy Crown Prince, uh, uh, someone wants to know, is it about uh, an all-Muslim military force? Uh, and lastly, uh, what would be the most effective thing for the United States to do to improve the success of global counterterrorism uh, activities? So those are four questions to start with. Well, regarding the first question as to what can be done to improve counterterrorism efforts in general, uh, greater cooperation, greater cooperation amongst countries, regions, uh, centers, 
uh, and this can be facilitated through the United Nations. But what, what we've been preaching uh, in the United Nations and two member states and uh, is, is contributing, contributing more to the Senate. Financially, uh, putting your money where your mouth is and, and, and providing resources to a center that is uh, fighting this scourge on a global level. Uh, we've gotten contributions from the United States, from the UK, from Germany, Japan. We've recently uh, had the uh, European Union commit around $4 million to a project on uh, de-radicalization in prisons in Europe. That, that, that's what it's all about. It's contributing to sp projects that are specific to those regions. And uh, w with the UNCCT, you have a platform that can address those issues. Um, I think the second question was, what is Saudi doing to combat violent extremism? I've mentioned some of those uh, uh, activities in, 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 in my talk. And we Saudi Arabia has been an integral part of... Uh, formulating the Secretary General's plan on preventing violent extremism through the United Nations. The plan uh, has uh, a list of recommendations uh, for the United Nations to implement. And the entity tasked with implementing those recommendations is the United, United Nations Counterterrorism Center. Uh, as far as violent extremism uh, locally, uh, I've talked about some of the educational reforms some of the uh, media outreach programs that the government has uh, taken a part of to dispel uh, that narrative and, and, and provide a counter-narrative uh, to what is being touted by these terrorist organizations. Uh, I think the third question was regarding uh, W. Crown Prince Hamid bin Salman's meeting here. Uh, I have no idea what the meeting is about. Um, uh, I'm sorry for whoever asked that question, uh, but I'm sure uh, he's here to uh, get some things done and, uh, and, and, and get them get them sorted. Uh, what can the U.S. do to improve counterterrorism uh, activities? I believe that was the fourth question. Is that right? What the U.S. can do? The U.S. has done a lot, but uh, probably more cooperation, more cooperation, and, and listening to uh, the viewpoints of, of, of member states that are close to the conflict zones and close to uh, uh, the regions that are most affected. Uh, getting that input and really taking it in uh, and, and, and acting upon that. Okay. Okay. What, do you, what do you think caused Daesh or ISIS uh, to come into existence? What can eradicate it? And what kinds of efforts have Saudi Arabia, uh, throughout the UN, or apart from it, taken to combat ISIS's highly successful online social media uh, program? Uh, and has, or when will the Saudi Arabian government respond positively? to the United States request to provide financial assistance to Iraq's government to help in the fight, its fight against ISIS. What caused Daesh 
eradicated. Uh, I, I probably can provide more insight on the second part of that question as to what caused Daesh. Uh, I believe there's there's a lot of anger uh, in that region uh, <clears throat> due to several in, in instances, but uh, that anger has fueled uh, and, and, and gave, give, given way to uh, extremist ideology to thrive. It's given it a, a safe haven and a, a uh, area to harbor and, and, and grow. And, and so you have a extremist ideology that appeals to a lot of kids that are marginalized, uh, lack upward mobility in, in their countries, and, uh, and feel that they can connect with a group that has uh, washed their minds uh, and convinced them that this is a noble cause somehow. Uh, what can we do to eradicate it? Uh, I can go on for hours, uh, but uh, we, what we can do immediately is start uh, promoting the counter-narrative. Promoting the counter-narrative. Making them look silly. Making them look like what they truly are. Uh, I, I, I truly believe in uh, promoting that counter-narrative is, is the key to dispel those notions. Uh, when you destroy them militarily, uh, it's, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, if you destroy Daesh, another group is going to pop up. But how can you destroy the ideology? How can you destroy that 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 core uh, idea that that they promote? Uh, I, I think it, it it comes from a, a more holistic approach, and it comes from a, an approach that attacks the ideology rather than just a purely military military approach. Uh, what efforts have we done um, through the United Nations? Uh, to uh, prevent online radicalization. I mentioned in my talk we had a uh, really, really productive uh, workshop with Google Ideas and, and Facebook. Uh, and, and they provided us a lot of input as to how they deal with the terrorist messaging that's uh, being touted on their websites and, and, and how does uh, Google uh, walk that fine line between... Uh, privacy and and also uh, if somebody's out there just searching uh, terrorist videos uh, do they have an obligation to to let officials know about that and that was a really interesting topic because there's no real clear answer here um, obviously these websites respect people's privacy and respect their rights to express themselves but what where where is the line uh, where is that red line if somebody is, is saying that they're going to, they plan on attacking or plan a terrorist attack? Is it their duty to step in and, and, and inform officials? And, and that was a uh, that was an interesting discussion, and it's an ongoing discussion with the private sector. I think this is a discussion that requires you to engage with these companies that provide these platforms and provide these uh uh, means of, of communication that terrorists have t unfortunately taken advantage of. Uh, you also have the issue of the dark web and, 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 and all the recruiting that goes on there. Uh, the efforts right now are, are, are solely searching for answers with, with, these, uh, with these entities. Uh, uh, and again, it goes back to providing the counter-narrative. Uh, how is it that these groups have uh, been able to uh, take advantage of their online presence much more than we have? And so it's, it's a matter of finding what the messaging is 
And, and that is data that we're uh, hoping to get from this foreign terrorist fighter study that the center is doing. Uh, it allows us to understand what is the uh, portion of the messaging that appeals to these kids the most. And so once we identify those factors, I think then the battle gets a little easier for us when it comes to uh, fighting online radicalization. Uh, I believe the third question was the uh, on the U.S. request to provide funds to Iraq. Yeah. And uh, that is a question I believe that is more well suited for some of my political affair colleagues. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, the, the uh, U.S. requested the kingdom to do so, uh, but the kingdom uh, obviously has its reasons for why they wouldn't and why they would uh, provide funding uh, if they feel that there is a risk of infiltration of those funds by certain organizations that might not uh, have the same interests in uh, eradicating these groups, uh, then, then that might be a problem. But as far as the exact answer to that question, I really uh, have, have no uh, clear answer for you at this moment. Thank you. There's a question here. Uh, Nawaf, can, can you please repeat uh, the statistics that you mentioned uh, in your remarks about how many times the numbers that terrorists have targeted Saudi Arabian cities, towns, uh, facilities, including energy uh, facility, uh, facilities? And why aren't these numbers well known uh, widely in the United States? Why, why do you think that is? Uh, second question. <clears throat> the Saudi Arabian media uh, reported that the, that the year 2016 marked the first year that the Shura uh, Council, which actually we hosted uh, two weeks ago at the offices of NASDAQ, uh, is reviewing reports uh, from the Ministries of Interior Defense and the National Guard. How do you see this evolving, uh, and how do you see this institution uh, evolving over the years and uh, with respect to their oversight function? So that's the, the second question. This one is a bit more tricky, I guess. Um, in light of the interconnected and complicated relationships among the following, Iran and its proxies, the Houthis in Yemen, the Assad regime in Syria, al-Nusra Front, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Daesh, how does Saudi Arabia manage <clears throat> these groups without advancing the interests of others. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a challenging question. Maybe you can even begin by starting you know, to identify these groups and, and, and what they're about. So I'll leave this question up here so you see the, the names in order. I know that's a lot for you, so thank you. Thanks, Pat. Um, as far as how many times terrorists uh, targeted Saudi Arabia. I have some statistics here that I've pulled up. Uh, and this is a quote from General Mansour al-Turki, who is the Ministry of Interior Security spokesman. Uh, and I quote, we have faced more than 63 terrorist attacks by Al-Qaeda and Daesh, 26 of them just in the last two years. More than 200 citizens and policemen were killed in terrorist attacks, and more than 2,800 suspects have been arrested since 2015. So that gives you an idea of the uh, 
the internal battle uh, in Saudi Arabia against these terrorist groups and the uh, commendable job that our security forces have been doing to uh, eradicate them. Uh, I do not have the full second question on the Shura Council, uh, but I will uh, go ahead and attack the third question, which is how do you defeat Iran's proxies without advancing the interests of other terrorist groups? That's simple. Uh, we treat terrorist groups all the same. They are all uh, terrorist groups in our eyes, and we want to eradicate each one of them uh, equally. We are not uh, here to uh, destroy one, one sect or one group and leave another group alone. Our, our focus is to eradicate terrorism from the region completely. And so uh, if, if, we are, uh, if we are helping other groups by eradicating some of these other groups, then their turn, the other group's turn is going to come after those groups are done with. So uh, we, we don't differentiate amongst terrorists. Terrorists are terrorists, and, and we want to eliminate this phenomenon completely from the region and from the world. Uh, Pat, do you mind repeating that second question? Sure. The second question was regarding the uh, Shura Council uh, and the expanded oversight uh, in the areas of, uh, of security defense. Uh, uh, do you see that that role uh, expanding uh, over the next couple of years, or is it is it uh, you know what is this all about? Can you explain this? Uh, I'm I'm a big uh, believer in uh, expanding the Shura Council's mandate and and, and their ability to uh, look at other uh, issues within the kingdom's uh, affairs, and because it is such a diverse group. Uh, representing the uh, uh, the country, uh, and now you have um, twenty women serving on the council, uh, on the Shura Council, and and that they are taking part in these decision making processes, uh, just as as their male counterparts. And so the Shura Council is evolving, and I believe it's uh, it's in accordance with that evolution that they take on a, a bigger responsibility as far as. Uh, reviewing uh, defense affairs uh, and what have you. How much emphasis does the United Nations Counterterrorism Center place on preventive versus combative measures against uh, extremist groups? And what, if at all, about this emphasis should be altered going forward. Given that there's an increasing phenomenon of terrorism taking place across borders, and therefore the challenge is transnational in nature, um, how, if at all, has this affected uh, the UN's approach uh, to its objectives. How have UN sanctions in countries like Sudan, which is a member of the coalition, 10 countries, thereby Saudi Arabia, uh, seeking to restore the last elected legitimate government of Yemen. Um, how has that impacted the progression of terrorism, given that uh, Sudan's president is um, under surveillance and there's sort of a warrant uh, for his arrest 
and take it to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Um, and related to that was, um, how is the United States explaining its uh, cooperation with Iran while Iran remains um, on the Department of State's and other list as the world's number one state sponsor of terrorism? Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Uh, the first question was on the uh, preventative versus combative approach that the UNCCT uh, or the UN has, has taken. And I think it's evolved. I think when we first started working uh, through the center, uh, we were focused on combating terrorism. And it was more on the ground focus. Uh, and, and then we realized uh, what, I, what I had mentioned earlier is that this needs to be preventative. And, and so with close consultation with the Secretary General, uh, member states in the UN have helped formulate the uh, plan of action on preventing violent extremism. Uh, notice it's preventing violent extremism, not combating violent extremism, which used to be the term uh, used most commonly in the United Nations. Uh, there, there seems to be a, a, a growing uh, uh, willpower, if you will, to address the preventative side uh, at the United Nations. And, uh, and so through this plan, uh, we're actually in the midst of, of discussing the plan right now at the United Nations. I, I have a meeting tomorrow discussing this plan. And so this plan addresses key factors as to how to address uh, the uh, path to violent extremism. So there's definitely mu uh, a much bigger focus on the preventative side of things uh, versus when, when we first started where we were just focusing on combating. And we realized we don't want to keep doing this over and over. Uh, with different groups that keep popping up, so we decided to focus on the preventative measures instead. Um, I believe the second question was uh, terrorism across borders and how it's affected the United Nations. Uh, we, this is why we place great emphasis in our border securities projects. Uh, the United Nations Counterterrorism Center has several border security initiatives and border security projects and these experts are deployed to member states upon their request uh, to train their uh, government's personnel as to how to manage border security more efficiently to stem the flow of uh, foreign terrorist fighters from crossing borders, especially in, in countries and regions where they lack some of that uh, capacity. Um, the question on Sudan and their role uh, in the alliance um, as far as the status of, 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 of the Sudanese president, uh, I'll, I'll leave that question for somebody else to answer, but Sudan has been uh, tremendous help uh, for us at the United Nations. Uh, they're a key contributor in the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Uh, they have helped, uh, obviously, on the ground. They have sent troops. They have uh, contributed to the alliance to prevent terrorism, which speaks volumes as to how uh, that government and country uh, looks at this problem. Uh, if, if, uh, uh, if the government is, is, is uh, promoting war crimes, then uh, why would they send their troops to join a coalition aimed at combating terrorism? Uh, as far as the U.S. cooperation uh, with Iran, uh, 
and and them still being listed as a state sponsor of terror or the number one state sponsor of terror, uh, I'm baffled myself. I'm baffled myself, and and uh, you know this is this is a, a a situation that we face here at the United Nations as well because uh, the U.S. government recognizes uh, Hezbollah as a terrorist organization as well as many other uh, countries in, around uh, uh, the world. And yet, the Security Council does not recognize them as a as a uh, as a terrorist organization. And so, uh, you you see the kind of a two pronged approach, or, or, or a little bit of uh, contradiction in the approach of, of naming them a a uh, State Department report. I believe it was that named them the number one state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, and yet, here we are. Um, with, with Iran uh, enjoying full status, no, no, no uh, sanctions at all uh, at the UN, full membership status, and uh, they are left free now with with the the new funds that they are receiving to promote and and support these organizations that have been uh, well known to support and 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 cause more trouble in the region. Nawaf, I have an additional question for you. Has the United States failed to show that it can work effectively with Arab states like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia to create broader efforts to create effective and moderate Arab forces? That's the first question. Second is, following on that, has U.S. diplomacy seem, it seems, to have done more to empower Russia, Assad, Hezbollah and Iran, then bring an end to the conflict in Syria. Your thoughts, please. Third question, what is the state of cybersecurity in the Arab world, and how would an interested young person get involved in your center? And lastly, uh, what is Saudi Arabia's biggest or largest contribution uh, to the United Nations Counterterrorism Center? The second question was, it seems that U.S. diplomacy has done more to empower Russia, Assad, Hezbollah, and Iran than bring to an end to the conflict in Syria. Can you comment? Thanks, Pat. Uh, the first question... Uh, was regarding uh, the U.S. and how they can create moderate Arab forces in partnership with uh, with with GCC countries. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. have fought side by side for a very long time, uh, including uh, the, some of the other GCC countries. As far as creating moderate Arab forces, I'm not sure what that term necessarily means, but uh, uh, they shared the same cause in, in, in the campaigns that they fought uh, alongside each other. And, and I believe that the U.S.-GCC relationship uh, will remain strong and grow, uh, especially after uh, recognizing that this is a common enemy. And, and so 
once once the uh, once they realize that this is a common enemy and and uh, it's it's a group that they need to eradicate together, uh, it's a matter of cooperation. It's a matter of cooperation, and 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 once that cooperation reaches optimal levels, I think they will accomplish their goal. Um, as far as the U.S. diplomacy uh, propping up uh, Assad regime, Russia, Hezbollah, uh, I believe that's a complicated question with many different uh, tentacles to it. But um, uh, maybe some of it is unintended. Or maybe if it is intended, then uh, it, it baffles me because uh, Hezbollah, for example, is a recognized terrorist organization uh, by the U.S. and by others. Uh, I obviously don't need to explain to you the horrors that the Assad regime has committed uh, and the support that they received from Russia. And so uh, why U.S. diplomacy has somehow benefited these actors, uh, I, I do not have a clear answer for you right now. Uh, cybersecurity in the Arab world and, and how to get involved in the Senate. Uh, uh, I mentioned some of the uh, cybersecurity initiatives that my own country is involved in, and uh, and and the heavy emphasis that my government places uh, on, on on this issue. Uh, cybersecurity is a is an issue that that you know this is the future of this of this war. Um, eventually, these groups are going to master uh, the the dark corners of the web, and eventually they're going to start uh, attacking through that, through cyber, uh, the cyberspace. And so this is why us and, and, uh, and, uh, and a lot of other countries through the United Nations have placed emphasis on cybersecurity programs and initiatives through the United Nations Counterterrorism, uh, Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, Counterterrorism Implementation Task Force. Uh, this, is, this is a, a emerging hot topic within this field. Cybersecurity is uh, you're going to be hearing more and more about it as, as uh, the years go on. Um, and it is the next uh, battlefront, I believe. Um, how to get involved in the center? Uh, there are always uh, internship listings available on the UN internship website that you can apply to online. Uh, uh, and uh, obviously, uh, you can go onto the center's website uh, and check for uh, availabilities. Uh, I recommend the best path uh, for any young person who might have uh, experience in international relations or, or political science is to intern at the center. See how uh, they do their work, get to familiarize yourself with, with how things are done. And, and if you do a good job, the center itself will provide you a path to full employment over there. We're always looking for talented young people that can uh, help with this cause. Um, as far uh, uh, can you repeat that fourth question? I'm sorry. Contribution of Saudi Arabia at the UN. Yes. What What would you? How would you? What would you regard as the uh, biggest, the biggest or largest right. contribution uh, of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to the United Nations Counterterrorism Center, other than financial support? Uh, uh, besides the obviously the 110 million dollars, uh, we provided expertise. Uh, like I said, we've hosted several international conferences in Riyadh on uh, counterterrorism, uh, where the members of the advisory board uh, and their heads of state show up in Riyadh and, and discuss all the latest issues in this field. And uh, we've provided uh, expertise uh, regarding uh, 
different thematic areas. Uh, we just concluded a uh, advanced passenger information workshop uh, over in, in Jordan where Saudi aviation experts explained uh, how they track foreign terrorist fighters and, 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 and best practices uh, as to identify uh, gaps within the aviation space that allows for these foreign terrorist fighters to use uh, airlines to travel back and forth. So I, I believe that that's the, uh, those are the two main contributions from Saudi Arabia is financially, A, and, and B, with expertise. Uh, also, uh, we, we believe we've uh, been able to contribute in, in the area of rehabilitation and reintegration. Uh, the Prince Mohammed bin Nayef Center for Rehabilitation and Reintegration has done a wonderful job and is a renowned center in the uh, world of rehabilitation and reintegration of former uh, foreign terrorist fighters, uh, local terrorists uh, or terrorist sympathizers, and uh, their work is, is world-renowned in the international community and we just had uh, some of the experts uh, over there last week briefing member states on, on, on best practices and what they've been able to identify as the uh, triggers to pull someone back from the world of uh, radicalized uh, ideology and belief to uh, being a productive member of society and not only that but also helping uh, officials in their fight against terrorism and identifying uh, some key elements as to what, are, what triggers uh, that radicalized mindset in some of these uh, young people. Thank you. Uh, well, the basic question, why does terrorism keep increasing despite all the United Nations, United States, Great Britain, and many, many other countries' efforts? Why does it keep increasing despite this? And then, could you uh, project yourself into the shoes of a young person reading the online social media uh, recruitment uh, efforts. Um, can you give us a feeling for what the recruitment message is and uh, why it's persuasive and efforts to uh, counter it or stop it? Uh, um, and how do banks or other financial groups finance terrorist groups? Uh, we hear about that, but we don't know exactly how it occurs, and that would be helpful. There was a question about in what ways has Saudi Arabia contributed to anti-piracy measures uh, within and outside of the UN's uh, combative, preventive and combative measures. Um, a side comment here, we had a visitor from Oman about a year ago who um, said he'd been to Somalia 18 times and that he went to the families of those engaged in piracy and the piracy pirates themselves and asked the basic question, why do you do it? And the answer in every case was, we don't have any money, don't have a job, etc. as I mentioned earlier. So the question was, how much money are we talking about? And the average answer was 1200 a month. And so Oman has been providing that. And those who previously were engaged in piracy have stopped. But of course, Saudi Arabia and 
the United States and Great Britain have contributed to that as well. Um, and then how does Saudi Arabia prepare to counter Iranian terrorism and sabotage given the current state of relations with Iran? And then the last one, straightforward, how does the UN react to the notion that one man's terrorist is another's freedom fighter? This is a important and, and great question. Why does terrorism keep increasing? And I believe it relates to same uh, idea that I talked about earlier, and that is because we have not perfected uh, the promotion of the counter-narrative. Uh, they are much better at us at appealing to uh, younger children that feel that betrayed by their governments or feel that they don't have the upward mobility or lack of opportunity or are marginalized uh, by their uh, local governments. And so... Uh, these organizations appeal to that mindset and, 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 and give them a path to join and, and, and they actually do a, a, a great job at appealing specifically to what that individual's uh, personal concerns are. Uh, whether that person's concerns are uh, of a religious nature and feeling that they're not accomplishing their religious duty, they will uh, create messaging directed uh, in that area. Whether that person feels like uh, they have no opportunity in their country, they will uh, prop up uh, uh, a big position for him within their organization. So they, they appeal very well to, and it's an individ individualized uh, approach that they take. So. Uh, unfortunately, we uh, in, in, in the uh, government sector have not been able to uh, perfect uh, that individualized messaging, uh, but we're on the way to do so, and we're on the way to promote the counter-narrative uh, so that terrorism is not increasing, uh, hopefully it hits a plateau and then starts decreasing very, very soon. Uh, but we are doing a great job uh, from the military perspective, and, and uh, uh, we, are, we are taking care of things on the military front. There's no advances. We, we, we do, uh, do conduct a pretty good job in that regard. Um, the feeling of a recruitee and why is it, uh, why is it very persuasive? Uh, like I said, I just mentioned it. It's, it's someone looking for an answer, someone looking for uh, that factor that appeals to their personal dilemmas. Uh, and, and, and these organizations provide uh, that, that space, that space where these kids feel wanted, they feel they have an important role, um, and before you know it, they're uh, brainwashed into thinking they are uh, committed to a holy cause. Uh, and so, why does a, re, uh, a, a young person go online and search for this? Because they feel it's the only escape. They feel society has betrayed them, uh, they feel Maybe they, they're dealing with some sort of psychological, psychiatric problem that they're not getting the proper treatment for. Maybe they are depressed uh, and they don't have the means to get the proper treatment. So uh, that, is, that is the feeling of, of someone that's uh, successfully been recruited to these organizations. And, and why are they so persuasive? Again, it's because they appeal uh, to the individual and, and, and don't just 
push a mass message. Uh, how do banks finance terrorist groups? Um, I, bank, banks have, have actually been an integral part of, of, of uh, the fight against the financing of terrorism and, and I've, I've attended several meetings here in D.C. and New York with banks, uh, major banks in attendance, uh, uh, the Morgan Stanleys of the world. You have great organizations based out over here in D.C. with uh, uh, the Financial Integrity Network, and they deal directly with the banks. And, and the banks are, 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 are a useful and helpful partner in this fight. And so uh, uh, I mentioned the uh, Financial uh, Task Force that, that Saudi Arabia is a part of to counter ISIL financing. Uh, banks are uh, a part of that task force and they do uh, provide uh, important input as to where this uh, money is being funneled and how it's coming and how it's going to uh, the perpetrators. Um, Anti-piracy measures. Um, it just so happens that I'm also the counter-piracy uh, focal point of the United Nations. And so uh, it's not a, a, as big a problem as, as countering terrorism, but uh, there is a connection there. Unfortunately, there is a connection. Uh, uh, pirates can end up being an extension of these terrorist organizations on, on sea. Uh, and and uh, we've learned that uh, they use these pirates to uh, deliver uh, illegal items, uh, we know that terrorist organizations benefit from illicit trade, uh, and, and so uh, you worry that these uh, pirates and uh, that are much less organized than these groups will become essentially extensions of these groups, and so that is something definitely to monitor. As far as anti-piracy measures, there have been uh, UN resolutions, uh, countless workshops and meetings on, on how to prevent the growth of the piracy uh, phenomena and uh, we have great uh, initiatives like the Responsibility to Protect that addresses a lot of these uh, piracy issues at the UN. And I'm sure governments that are affected by this area are taking measures to combat uh, the, the, the piracy problem. Uh, how does uh, Saudi Arabia prepare to counter uh, Iranian uh, terrorist attacks? Uh, the same way they prepare to uh, counter any terrorist attacks uh, in our eyes. Uh, the threat is, is one threat, uh, and uh, if you are uh, of a terrorist uh, mindset and terrorist ideology, then you are an enemy of Saudi Arabia. And so it doesn't matter where you come from and who's supporting you, uh, the kingdom will view you the same and will, uh, uh, and, and they don't prioritize. If you're a terrorist organization that poses a direct threat, you will be eliminated. Uh, and I'm sorry, I, I don't have the, the last question. Uh, it's one man's uh, terrorist, another man's a woman's uh -huh. freedom fighter. Uh -huh. and, and, and what the UN is? Uh, no, just, just that. Okay. Uh, that, that notion is, uh, you know, I, I believe is used in, in certain occasions to describe the people struggling with foreign occupation and... and uh, people struggling to uh, find the right to self-determination. And, and, and we have certain conflict zones that we all uh, know about. And, and I believe the, this is what this uh, phrase references. But as far as these groups that we're talking about, who, whose freedom are they fighting for? 
uh, who, we, we have account after account of these people actually taking the freedom of the cities they occupy, uh, committing horrible acts of violence. Uh, they're no one's freedom fighter. Uh, but I believe this, uh, this phrase refers to people designating uh, people under alien uh, domination and foreign occupation as, as terrorists when, when their lands are being taken away and, and, and uh, illegally so. So that's, that is what I believe that phrase is referring to. But as far as these recognized terrorist organizations, they're no one's freedom fighter. And, and no one recognizes, uh, recognizes them as such. Thank you. Uh, and bringing this uh, to a close, uh, I wanted to make one reference to uh, the cultural aspect of all of this. Uh, American culture, British culture, European culture, Asian, African, Latin America, etc. Um, and here's where the uh, Islamophobia uh, takes root uh, here in the United States. And it's a close cousin of uh, Arab phobia, which uh, kicked in right after September the 11th, 2001. Uh, some of you may know. Uh, because it's been published in the leading newspapers of Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, and uh, Kuwait, uh, the National Council's uh, vision and efforts to establish in Washington, D.C., right here in the center, an Arab Cultural Institute. And it would focus on Arab culture. And we believe every member of Congress would come to it, and their staff as well, all the lobby groups, professional associations, and teachers in the social studies and humanities within 50 mile radius of here, and their students. Um, so we have already begun on this. We hope we will have the financial support of the GCC countries. Um, the, the financing of this is crucial uh, to be solved before one begins. Uh, but it will have a museum, several floors, of uh, the main artifacts of the 22 Arab countries. And it will be designed in such a way that the national days of the various Arab countries that currently are held in places like the Four Seasons or the Ritz Carlton or elsewhere and cost around $50,000, that they would be held at the Arab Cultural Center. And if we're talking about 10 a year, that's a savings of $500,000 that can be put to good use in terms of scholarship aid for students and, and research and fellows there. So just wanted you to know about that. It's a step to erase the dehumanizing dynamic that lies behind Islamophobia and Arab phobia. And to, to build on this notion of, uh, at the end of the day, that we are we, there's an usness, there's a you and me uh, on these issues and a host of others. Um, we thank our specialists for coming here from the United Nations to enlighten us on a range of questions, issues, and challenges relating to terrorism and counterterrorism. Thank you, Mr. Al-Thari. Please join me. Thank you.